Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. And for this week's episode, we're going to have a policy staff roundtable focused on a variety of different topics because there's been a lot going on with the ERLC over uh, the last couple of weeks. As you know, we are anticipating a vote in the United States Senate on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which, Chelsea, you will speak to that here in a little bit. Uh, we also have Stephen and Travis here joining Chelsea and I around the roundtable uh, to talk about a few other topics as well. Everybody, it's good to see you around the table. It's been a while since we've all been in one place. There's been a lot of traveling. I know. It's good to see you guys. I think it's been a, it's been over a month, I think, since I've been on the pod. Really? Maybe more. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That, 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 there's no, I'm not trying to <laughs> say anything. I'm just saying. Sorry. <laughs> well, you do have a little bit of a glow about you. Oh, do I? Yeah, you do. <laughs> oh, that must be because I was uh, in the great state of Texas last in week. In the great state of Texas. And moving on. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by the ERLC Internship Program. The ERLC is currently accepting applications for this summer's program in both of our offices in Nashville, Tennessee, and Washington, D.C. Our internship exists to prepare students and young professionals with a kingdom-focused worldview to engage the culture with the gospel of Christ. Hear now from some of our former interns as they answer the question, why should someone apply for an internship at the ERLC? If you're at all interested in politics or how faith intersects with the public square, the ERLC internship in D.C. is an incredible opportunity that I would highly recommend you uh, consider. It's not just the type of internship that you want to do. Only if you're interested in government can you be in this. But for Christians, this stuff that you know we were learning in this internship can be applicable in a huge variety of areas. And I would recommend anybody who's a Christian who's interested in politics to apply to this because it really is a good way to get practice in certain policy areas and to learn how to be a Christian in a space that's often not friendly to them. Getting to experience people who are fighting the good fight, but also are deeply spiritual and, and deeply rooted in their faith is an experience that I will carry forward for a long time. You should apply because you will become a better person and a better professional. I think there is that dualistic spiritual and professional development that, that you're not going to find really anywhere else. A great learning experience about what it looks like in practice to make a difference and to do it in a way that is gospel-minded and method as well. If you're looking for a great internship, especially in D.C. in that atmosphere, you should definitely check out the ERLC. Coming and working and interning for the ERLC builds so many relationships in our areas of interest that have been super helpful in learning what we want to do going forward, but also just learning how to live out your faith in everyday life. If you or someone you know in your church or on your campus is interested in our work, consider applying. For more information and to learn about each office and the various internship concentrations available, 
visit ERLC.com slash internships. All right, Chelsea, I want to, uh, on this roundtable conversation, I want to come to you first. We're going to record this conversation uh, in two parts because right now we are uh, waiting on a scheduled vote in the United States Senate on the Born Alive bill that we've been talking a lot about. So on the back end of this podcast, we're going to re-record in the morning after the vote has happened to see whether or not uh, it is moving forward in the Senate or not. We're working on that right now. You want to give everybody an update. Yeah, so thank you so much, Jeff. We have done a lot of work on this issue um, from publishing an op-ed today in Alabama to having conversations with abortion survivors. Last week, we spoke to and interviewed uh, Melissa Odin, um, and we've had explainers. We've just done a lot of work on this issue. So what this bill does, to give a quick recap, is legally protects children, babies that are born alive from a failed abortion. Current law does not protect them. Um, and there are no um, legal ramifications for a child that is born alive that does not receive um, medical care. So this bill um, would essentially protect children that are born alive and penalize doctors that do not um, provide care to those those little babies. Um, like I said, we've done lots of work on this. You can go back and listen to previous um, episodes. We do anticipate a floor vote today in the Senate. Um, we don't anticipate it to pass. It would need 60 votes to get to cloture. We don't anticipate that, but you never know. We will see. And like, but we're working toward that. We are working towards that. Um, Be- because really, this is, sure, anything dealing with abortion is unfortunately right now uh, a culture war debate. But this particular vote, I mean, what to do with born alive children, it's really common sense. And it's as common sense as it is tragically necessary. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, and some of the the pushback has been, well, infanticide is already illegal. Why do we even need this bill? Yeah, sure. And infanticide is illegal except for a child that is born alive from a failed abortion. And so this bill protects all babies, not just babies that were born normally, not from a failed abortion. Yeah. So again, it's common sense legislation. It should be something that everyone should say yes on. And Americans deserve to know where their elected officials stand on this issue. That's exactly right. So Stephen, I want to come to you next. We're in the uh, final days of the month of February, and February is Black History Month. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wanted to be sure that we had a chance on this episode, if we're talking about issues uh, in the national conversation, Black History Month is is always one of those things that's in the national dialogue. But there might be some listeners out there who have never really thought critically about the history of Black History Month and uh, and why why it's important uh, that that we have this uh, annual reminder of of our African-American neighbors. So you want to speak a little bit about Black History Month and uh, maybe its history and, and the importance of, of it today? Yeah, really important to know. I mean, Black History Month began as... Um uh, Negro Week. Um, it was it was one week in which its founder Carter G. Woodson. Um, this was in 1926. Thought it right. Uh, he's an historian. He's a journal- journalist. Thought it right that time be set aside, particularly for the teaching of particular histories in public schools. But time be set aside to kind of think about. African-American contribution uh, to American culture, to American society, and to literally think about uh, the history of African-Americans in the U.S. He didn't want that history to be lost. Uh, He he and many other scholars felt that uh, this kind of 
reflection, this kind of production of knowledge was essential to the kind of perpetuation of uh, the culture, the African-American race really in society. And what I mean by that is it's kind of future validity, it's future legitimacy. He, he wanted to make sure that people understood, one, a history of contribution, a history of presence, a history of reality, so that the future of of, of African Americans in terms of culture, in terms of uh, intellectual contribution, would have somewhere to go. One of the things that I think is important to realize about what will become Black History Month, and I'm speaking really from from a historian of American religion, these kinds of projects and these kinds of moments are undergirded by a simple kind of affirmation or conjecture, and that is this, that the history of African Americans is a part of American history, right? That you cannot understand American history comprehensively and truly unless you understand African American history. Yeah, that's right. And that's been a, a really contested claim, right? That's 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 been something that has been pushed back against, right? I think oftentimes people think of kind of US history in terms of its high points and its um, successes and even its failures apart from a comprehensive critical consideration of African-American history. And so I just remember reading a work uh, by a religious historian named Albert Rabito. He's talking about the founding of the black church and in an afterward to a later edition of his work, he undergirds this point, right? That black religious history in America ought be considered as a part of American religious history. And what does that mean, right? I think it's something very, very concretely, right? When we think about the ways in which we might think about the church being persecuted, and he he talks about how the persecuted church, just the concept, typically what comes to people's minds in American religious history is not black Christianity under slavery, but that's the persecuted church, right? That's right. Um, it's, it's, it's just making sure that these historical realities and markers are included in people's historical imagination about how they think about the country. Um, and so these moments are times where, that's why you see all the, the kind of Black history trivia across social medias and timelines, et cetera. It's trying to help us understand that one, there is a history here. Uh, there's this longer conversation about how, uh, particularly in the 19th century, white racist historians didn't think that black people had a history worth noting. Uh, but one, there is a history here. But then two, like I mentioned before, there has been very significant and substantive contributions to to American culture, American society. And 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 this moment allows us to reflect on on all of that, right? And so, so I would just encourage listeners to lean into that, right? And to really think about their own understanding of American history and, and how these stories, these narratives fit into that or do not fit into that and be challenged by that, by that question. You know, just I, I want to make a comment on uh, the religious history of America. Ligon Duncan recently preached at my church here on Capitol Hill, uh, and he, he happened to be preaching on uh, the Sunday before MLK Day. Uh, he was preaching on Psalm 89, phenomenal, phenomenal message for a lot of reasons. But I was just pulling up my notes here uh, from from that sermon. He, he quoted a, a, a black pastor in D.C. many, many years ago. So the quote was this in, in relation to God's, God's providence. Duncan said that race prejudice cannot be taught down. It must, it must be lived down. And uh, one of the most powerful quotes uh, by Grimke was that God may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. Mm-hmm. That just your comment on the persecution of the black church in America and what 
the church at large in America has to learn from the black church in America. That quote has been really impactful to me as I've just considered a variety of different stories throughout throughout this month, that the black church really has a lot to teach us about how to trust in God's providence when life around you uh, is is anything uh, but uh, roses and, and, and sunshine, that, that God may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. He may not come when you want him, but he'll, he'll be there right on time. It's a staple phrase in black preaching. I mean, I said it a couple Sundays ago. <laughs> I don't know if Grimke originated it, but it, it, it it's just, it's one of our sayings. It's interesting to say that when uh, Woodson began Negro History Week, and chose February to kind of coincide with Frederick Douglass's birthday um, and Abraham Lincoln's birthday. He wanted to commemorate their birthdays with this week. Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't imagine that it would become an entire month. And he didn't imagine that it would be something that continued to today the way that it does. Uh, so it's really a, um, a a great legacy that that Woodson left for us to consider at, at a particular period in time each year: the history, the contribution, the struggle, um, and the future, hopeful future. One more resource that I'll uh, link to in the in the show notes regarding Black History is uh, an event that my wife and I went to uh, this past week at the Bipartisan Policy Center. It was a it was a conversation with uh, Lonnie Bunch. Uh, Dr. Bunch is the founding director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and it was a fascinating conversation for many reasons. Not the least of which was his own personal story coming uh, as a kid in New Jersey. Who he he shared the story of uh, for him his interest in history began when he was playing basketball with some of the other neighborhood kids. He was he was one of the only African-Americans there. When one of the parents came out to give all the kids who were playing uh, a drink, she did not hand a cup to him, but rather pointed uh, to the hose and said, you can go drink out of the hose. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, why would she tell me that? I mean, just out of the mouth of babes, right? Like, as a little kid trying to understand that sort of prejudice, like, why would she tell me that? And he said, so I just, I began thinking, maybe if I could understand more of the history of this country, I could understand my own place and how I fit into Mm. it. So, and then just his fascinating story of, of uh, really, I mean, he's been a Washington diplomat in the Smithsonian scene for a really long time. That's right. And then to to have sort of the weight of all of those experience come to bear over the last decade plus uh, of this museum opening uh, was was really phenomenal. And uh, he talked about some of the different exhibits, and it was cool to see how proud he still is that it really is one of the hardest tickets in town to go to that museum. Wow. Uh, and uh, if 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 you are ever in D.C., you've got to make time to go to that Smithsonian. Uh, it's it's incredible uh, in both the sort of haunting story that it tells uh, in a very real way, and also just really encouraging to see, mm-hmm. as you said, Stephen, a reminder that African American history is not some sort of subplot. Mm-hmm. It is American history. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. All right, Travis. I want to come to you now. Uh, a lot has been happening, and uh, a lot of news stories have been written about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Most notedly, there was an article, or a series of articles, rather, published in the Houston Chronicle uh, in recent weeks that led our boss, Russell Moore, uh, to post a lot of different content. He was on a lot of different news sites and shows after those articles published, which detailed stories over the past two, three decades, really horrific, horrific stories of sexual abuse in our own churches. Uh, And that led eventually to the SBC president, J.D. Greer, at the most recent executive committee meeting of the SBC, uh, 10 
calls to action for Southern Baptists on sexual abuse. I would guess that most people listening along to this podcast have kept up and have read some of these articles, but I was curious if you could just uh, take a take a moment to update our listeners on what all has been happening. Well, I'm, I, th- I think I want to pick up on something that you said in terms of, you know, just how haunting these stories are. And I think that before we talk about anything that we are doing in response, I think the first thing that we have to do in response to this is weep and lament and repent and really take a step back and really grieve what what has been going on um, in Southern Baptist churches. Yeah. Um, those those three Houston Chronicle stories are uh, are haunting. They are devastating. They they tell the stories of uh, women and men whose lives have been just crushed um, and trampled, and uh, and also tell the stories of women and men who who kept their silence for you know for in some case decades because they felt or believed maybe rightly that if they came forward and told somebody that they would not be believed hmm. uh, and that justice would not be delivered um, on their uh, for them and on their behalf and so you know I think that before we you know before we do anything else we've got to start there yeah and that that is in fact the first of the 10 call to actions uh, that our SBC president JD Greer made which was to enter a season of sorrow and repentance Southern Baptists should lament abuse in our churches and repent of our failure to adequately address the issue and that's exactly right that's what God's people are called to do all throughout scripture and that's what we should do right now right and and there you know and and the, and that's the thing is is if you if you look at the stories told in the Houston Chronicle reporting and a lot of the reporting that's happened you know in and around that story it, it is a story of our failure, and I think it's something that we have to deal with, um, honestly, and with with broken hearts. I have been very encouraged by by what JD uh, has laid out in his ten point uh, call to action. I think he's he's right on the money. Um, much of what he has uh, has laid out for us is is really a, a, a path that charts a, a better future in terms of uh, making sure that our churches are well protected, making sure that as we I mean, this we we know that we can't eradicate abuse, and and that, I think that's one of the hard things about about this particular issue is that there we we can do everything that we can uh, to protect our churches, and we absolutely should, and, right. and we need to be vigilant, and we need to to fight, and we need to be thinking about creative ways to stop those who would hurt other people. But we we know that that this side of the eschaton, um, the the sin of man will find a way. And so part of part of what we're talking about is protecting churches, but the other piece is making sure that our churches are places where if you have been hurt and wounded and abused exactly. and assaulted that you can you know that you'll be believed first of all. You know that you won't be further victimized right. by the way that we we uh, seek to care for you and you you can be confident that uh, the pastors, the leaders, the men and women who you serve with and who you worship with on Sunday are well equipped to walk with you through what what we know is a long journey uh, of healing. And you know those two elements in terms of you know preparing our churches and protecting our churches, making sure that they're safe, and also caring well for survivors and victims of sexual abuse are are key. But I think you know the other the other thing to highlight that that JD has laid out. Is uh, is a new is a new mechanism for disfellowship uh, with churches that uh, that that are indifferent to sexual abuse, who hire 
abusers knowingly and aren't concerned about their pastor who cover up uh, things that have happened and and prevent this uh, this abuse from coming to light and, and ultimately preventing justice to, uh, from being delivered uh, to those victims. And so the bylaws committee of the executive committee has has um, is working towards new language that would facilitate uh, that mechanism of, of disfellowship by the messengers uh, to the uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention. Travis, I'm so encouraged by those things that the SEC is doing and working on and the steps we are taking. Um, But just a reminder for all of us that the final day, um, justice will be ultimately served, and all of us have to stand before um, King Jesus and Judge Jesus. And for some, we will be covered by the blood, but others will not. And so justice will ultimately be served, and there will be a day when final redemption will be um, given to us, and Jesus promises to wipe away all of our tears and that suffering will be no more. And so mm-hmm. for anyone that's walked through sexual abuse or any kind of um, hurt in the church, just a reminder that there's a day coming when all of this will be um, made new. That's good. I'm encouraged by the response, um, as Travis laid out. Just as, as I'm processing this from different vantage points, and I've gotten a lot of questions. I'm sure many people have questions that remain. Um, and I think people need to understand that that something like this is going to take time. Um, but it, it is encouraging to hear that the efforts that are being made are from the leadership that is, namely from from President Greer and, and others, that that there isn't a kind of soft handling of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there isn't a desire to, um, at the end of the day, make sure that the denomination looks a certain way in the right. public eye. I mean, all right. those things are, are. This is not a PR problem. Yeah, and that yeah. that needs to that that needs to be that posture needs to be maintained throughout right. all of this. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's right. And I think with anything, we we have to acknowledge that that progress and growth in this area is not always going to be a straight line. There's going to be disagreements about how and when and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, there, I mean, there, there were even some of those things coming out of the executive committee uh, over the weekend. But, you know, I, I know that that Dr. Greer's commitment to getting this issue right is steadfast and resolute. I think we are, you know, we we stand behind him. And, you know, I think that what, you know, just to pick up on what you were saying, Chelsea, I mean, the, the thing that's paramount in this case is that we we keep our perspective focused not on the PR dimension of this, but the spiritual reality that all of us will one day have to give an account for what we've done and what we have not done. Right. And if we keep our eyes as leaders and as, as folks who are working, working to make sure that our churches are, are both safe and also a haven, if we keep our focus on that eternal perspective, not, not what some reporter thinks about us, but right. what God thinks about us, um, and, and the reality that when we close our eyes, they will open again. And, and we'll be standing before Jesus. Um, if we keep our perspective there, then nothing should be off the table uh, in terms of our response. And I, I know that that's that's the way that Dr. Greer looks at this. And um, and you know we I look forward to seeing what what ideas he continues to bring forward, and we look forward to continue to work with him on it. Well, thanks so much, Travis, for for that update. 
I want to close this part of of the of the podcast, particularly talking about uh, the issue of sexual abuse in our churches, uh, with the closing lines from Dr. Moore's piece, which was published on February tenth, the Sunday that the Houston Chronicle articles came out. Uh, it was published on his on his website, russellmore.com, under the title "Southern Baptist and the Scandal of Church Sexual Abuse." Dr. Moore closes out his piece with this. Jesus does not cover up sin within the temple of his presence. He brings everything hidden to light. We should too. When we downplay or cover over what has happened in the name of Jesus to those he loves, we are not, quote, protecting Jesus's reputation. We are instead fighting Jesus himself. No church should be frustrated by the Houston Chronicles reporting, but should thank God for it the judgment seat of Christ will be far less reticent than a newspaper series to uncover what should have never been hidden. All right, well, Travis, Stephen, Chelsea, thank you so much for making the time on a busy Monday uh, to cover a wide array of topics. Uh, But that's our charge here at the ERLC, to take the gospel into the public square, uh, the news and debates shaping the world. We're bringing a Christian theological motivation to it. And that calling on our work here at the ERLC is wide. So I appreciate uh, working alongside you each and every day. Uh, we'll, We'll come back Uh, on the backside of this podcast to talk about what the Senate did on the Born Alive vote, which we are anticipating and expecting a vote on any minute. This is Jeff and Chelsea back on Tuesday morning after the Monday evening vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act in the United States Senate. Very unfortunately, this bill failed. Uh, The final vote was 53 to 44. You might be thinking, how does a majority vote, how is that considered a failure? Well, it's considered a failure because this vote needed uh, 60 votes, 60 senators to move it forward procedurally. Uh, So the Senate operates on a rule and procedure called cloture. For a bill to move forward to achieve cloture, it has to have 60 votes uh, to overcome the legislative filibuster threshold. So even though a majority of senators voted on just what what I would describe as the ultimate common sense bill to say that infanticide is and should be illegal in the United States, even for children who are born alive after a botched abortion, 53 senators said, yes, we agree with that. It is just simply unconscionable, reprehensible that 44 senators said, no, we don't agree with that, and really made some outlandish arguments about that. We're going to dig into all of that here. I've got uh, my colleague, Chelsea Patterson-Soblick, with me, who you all know has been working on this issue, including um, submitting a uh, a co-authored op-ed in the state of Alabama on this issue leading up to the vote. So, Chelsea, here we are. Uh, the Senate failed to do what uh, many would think is complete, total common sense. 60 votes were required to move it forward, failed to get that. Talk to us a little bit about the numbers. Who's in that 53 yes votes? Who's in the 54 no votes? 
Yeah. So unfortunately, like you mentioned, this bill did fail to reach the 60 vote threshold. Um, We did see, which I I was quite encouraged by, that it was not strictly a party line vote, meaning all Democrats voted nay, all Republicans voted yay. Uh, There were three Democrats that voted in favor of the bill. And those three were Senator Casey from Pennsylvania, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, and then Senator Jones from Alabama. Um, where we did place our op-ed. So we also saw three Republicans that missed the vote due to flight delays, and those three were Senator Kramer from North Dakota, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, and Senator Scott from um, South Carolina. So not everyone was present to vote. Even if they had been, it would not have reached that 60-vote threshold. Yeah, so it could have been 56. It could have been a little bit higher. uh, Um, 44. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So one thing we saw, um, which we were here last night in the office watching the floor debate and then watching the vote, is just the most ridiculous um, arguments against this bill. Um, Several female senators came to the floor to speak um, in favor of the bill. Uh, Joni Ernst came and spoke. Um, Fisher from Nebraska. Fisher from Nebraska. uh, The chairman of the Senate Pro-Life Caucus, Steve Daines, came to speak in favor of the Okay. And Senator Dane shared the story of Melissa Odin, who we on the, who we had on the podcast last week, who is herself a survivor of a failed abortion. Yes, he shared her story on the floor. But we also saw um, several female Democrats coming to speak against this bill. And one of the craziest things to me was they came to the floor and they didn't even share stories about this bill. They didn't even share arguments against this bill. They didn't even talk They didn't even about talk about this bill. The bill. Exactly. Right. We heard stories about um, abortions at 20 weeks. We heard stories about how this bill would interfere with a woman and her doctor to provide care. One of the most um, gripping and outlandish statements. I, I personally um, heard last night was from Senator Tina Smith. And she said that this bill was inappropriate because it would force doctors to provide inappropriate care to their patients, meaning it was inappropriate to require a medical professional to provide life-saving care to a born-alive abortion survivor baby. A baby that has been born alive is laying on the table, living, breathing, Um, And it would be inappropriate to force a medical professional to provide that care. So that was just one of the most striking things um, that I I left last night with of just all these arguments that had nothing to do with the bill and had everything to do with um, a narrative from the abortion lobby. Senator Joni Ernst. Uh, from from Iowa, who is is uh, a terrific leader on on this issue and and many others who the ERLC is is pleased to work with often. Uh, her her comments were that she was hearing two very very different discussions about what's actually on the floor in front of us, uh, and and offered some clarity there early on in the debate uh, that this bill does not address abortion or women's health issues at all at all. The bill was simply about what to do with a baby who is born alive on the table, the very kind of child, the very kind of situation that the disgraced, for many reasons, governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, advocated for on air here in this city on WTOP radio for leaving on the table as the doctors, 
would have a discussion about what to do. This is what this bill was about. It was about babies born alive, babies like Melissa Odin, born alive, on the table, living, breathing, what to do about that child. And to me, it really showed this sort of ridiculousness around abortion politics uh, in this country, Uh, that somehow the opposition to this bill was able to come out and just lie Mm-hmm. about what this bill was actually about and convince 44 of their colleagues to go along with the smokescreen. Right. And Senator um, Sass, who sponsored this bill, was very, very clear on what the legislation actually does in his um, opening remarks. This is a quote from him. He said, I want to ask each and every one of my colleagues whether we're okay with infanticide. This language is blunt. I recognize that, and it's too blunt for many in this body. Frankly, that's what we're talking about here today. Infanticide is what the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act is actually about. And and many of the senators that came to speak in in favor of the bill pointed out this has nothing to do with Roe v. Wade. Right. And yet somehow it got twisted and right. twisted and twisted. So Yeah. Senator Daines called it a truly absurd moment for the floor of the United States Senate. Mm-hmm. Have we become so numb as a nation that we cannot realize that we're talking about a living, breathing baby here? So, Chelsea, how how do we make sense of such of such an absurd absurd moment? How do we make sense of forty four United States senators voting against a bill that would simply protect living, breathing babies? How is it possible that any of them could vote against a law outlawing infanticide? Well, one thing to know is that all of the announced uh, 2020 presidential candidates voted against the bill. So there's something political. So there's definitely something political. They are virtue signaling to their constituents and their hopeful voters one day of where they stand on this issue. Um, I'd like you to share some of the... Not even necessarily the issue of infanticide, Mm -hmm. but just Mm -hmm. on abortion. Women's rights, all these things that they have somehow tied all together, which they're two completely different issues. Um, So so they were virtue signaling. Something else to note um, is very clear to see that many of the senators that voted in favor for this bill are showing us where they truly stand and where they have stood all along, but they have used talking points for many years, such as safe, legal, and rare. But we have suspected, and now we have them on record as being extreme and voting for extreme laws and um, not even protecting an alive baby. So we have them on record for well, voting. And just like unwilling that. to even have that conversation. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so. and, and, th- and that was one of the things that, you know, when you're listening to these floor speeches, and, and the initial floor speech against this bill uh, came from Senator Patty Murray of Washington, who said, infanticide's already illegal. This bill is a ridiculous, fake news, sort of, this never happens. Um, and so it started there. Like, oh, this never happens. It's not It's not needed. And then it became, wow, this bill would require doctors to provide inappropriate care in these types of situations. Well, I thought these types of situations never happened. Mm-hmm. So to me, when you, you can't have, have it all. Right, you can't have it all. And so w- when you have these sort of talking points, which often, let's just be honest, a lot of times when a United States senator goes to the floor, they're reading a script that was provided to them by their staff 
or potentially by outside groups who are invested in this debate. So I, I think the key, and this is something that that Travis uh, here talks about often, the key to understanding these types of shock the conscience moments around this debate is, is in understanding the power of the abortion lobby in American politics. He said yesterday on Twitter, this vote shows that for the abortion lobby, requiring care for babies who have already been born is a threat to their business. Consider that for a moment. Uh, then I, I think really helpful for all of our listeners to consider as they're thinking about just the absurdity of this of this debate that 44 people could possibly vote uh, against a law outlawing infanticide. Uh, Senator Lankford says, I think this is a good time to ask the abortion lobby, what is your red line? Uh, birth is is no longer good enough for an abortion to sort of be be completed, which it's just a horrific thing to consider. And so I think it's important to not vilify the other side. Right. Uh, politically, the other side, and and to recognize from the Christian perspective that these types of evils, when they are propped up, they are propped up because the devil is confusing terms, mm-hmm. and that and that's one of the things you know. Senator Sass pointed this out uh, as well. There are a lot of people in that group of forty-four that voted against this bill who are often going to the Senate floor to quote stick up for the little guy, yep, uh, to protect the vulnerable. Whether the vulnerable are immigrants who are fleeing uh, horrific situations, trying to come to this country as the last great hope on earth, uh, or or defending vulnerable in in any different situations uh, that public policy speaks to the vulnerable, you have them voting against this bill. Well, for us, for Christians, we know that's just because the devil has confused their terms. Mm. So let's talk about next steps uh, after after a bill like this. the The first thing I would I would say is that we ought to continue to keep praying. Continue to keep praying that God would open hearts and and open eyes of people in the abortion lobby to see what they are doing. Because I think a lot of people legitimately pursue those types of uh, those types of careers, maybe working for Planned Parenthood or, or NARAL or some of these other groups, because they want to defend women uh, in vulnerable situations. I would just commend our listeners to begin praying uh, that they that their eyes would be open to see uh, the other person involved in that situation. And then the other thing uh, that we would commend our listeners to do is to continue sharing your stories of life. Uh, we work with a group called Stand for Life, who's now part of the ERLC family, and this is why Stand for Life Avenue on Instagram and Facebook of sharing their stories is so important because sharing these stories of the value of all human life truly does make a difference. Mm-hmm. It changes people's minds, and it and it affects people's people's hearts. So sharing stories about adoption. Mm-hmm. Chelsea, I know this is something that you're very passionate about. Sharing stories about caring for children in foster care. Sharing stories about working in pregnancy resource centers. In fact, one of our colleagues here, Lauren, uh, ducked out early as soon as the vote was done because she was going to volunteer at a pregnancy resource center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was an awesome picture of a next step after the Senate fails. A Christian is going to go out and volunteer uh, to make a difference in her local community. That's exactly right. In in case you think that these are just sort of general talking points from the ERLC about what can make a difference, there was some polling that came out this week that actually shows how uh, hearts and minds are being changed because of this national conversation. Last month, a Marist poll survey found that Americans were more likely uh, to identify as pro-choice than pro-life. The number was 55% pro-choice, 
pro-life. After this national conversation from the late-term abortion law in New York and uh, the infanticide advocacy by Governor Ralph Northam in Virginia, and then this bill, the Born Alive bill, on the floor of the United States Senate, as this debate has, has, uh, has been occurring in the public square, those numbers shifted 17 points. And now Americans, according to this Marist survey poll, found that Americans are evenly divided 47 to 47% on the question of pro-choice, pro-life. That's, that's significant. And uh, it seems, according to their survey, that leading this shift uh, are Democrats under the age of 45, 34% of whom, so young Democrats, identify as pro-life in this poll. That's staggering. Uh because you you only saw three uh, Democrats in the U.S. Senate vote for this bill, and yet we're seeing in polling this very week that 34% of Democrats under 45 identify as pro-life. You know, one of the things I think this speaks to is how out of step um, elected officials can be with their constituents. Yeah. And, and something else, um, I, I don't want our listeners to be discouraged by the vote. In some ways, it should deeply grieve our hearts that the U.S. Senate cannot pass this bill. But we should also be encouraged because we have a we have the long view in mind. Um, we know this bill has come before um, the chamber before, and it is not passed. And so we're going to keep trying and we're going to keep working. And, and polls like this show that the culture is shifting in how they view um, late-term abortions, um, born-alive babies. And so, I mean, while while on the one hand we we should be grieved by by what happened last night, we should also be encouraged that um, the hearts and minds of people are changing. And um, like you said, the more we share our stories, the more we talk about um, why this is important and, and really make the connection of what this actually is and even what late-term abortion is. Right. I've said it here before, and I'll say it again. The U.S. is one of only a handful of nations right. that allows for late-term abortion, including China and North Korea. And so the more we can just talk about the extremity of the positions, and and most people don't agree with those extremities. Right, right. And, and so the more we can um, make this common sense right. that, of course, Americans want to protect born alive babies. Of course, we don't want to abort a baby that feels pain. Of course, you know, recasting a vision for a world where it would be unthinkable that these things would happen. And and that polling shows that the needle is shifting. And so the more we can have these conversations and keep these conversations in in the public eye, the better. Um, One thing that I think the House is doing really well right now is the GOP is asking um, consistently for unanimous consent to vote on the House version of the Born Alive bill. And, of course, it's likely not going to happen. But what they are doing is they are daily and weekly putting this back up on people's radars and, and making people think about this and making people um, say no to this. And so I think it's um, a, a good thing that they're doing is just bringing it back up continuing to have this be part of our conversation so that it wasn't a blip on the radar and and we move on as a country. And so um, there have been seven um, requests now for unanimous consent for this bill. So again, it's likely not going to happen and, and that's okay. That's not the purpose. Yeah. Um, the purpose is to continue to highlight highlight this issue in Congress and highlight this issue um, in in the media. 
And we're going to continue the conversation as well. Caring for the vulnerable is a lodestar of our work here at the ERLC. And we would encourage you to care for the vulnerable in your community. Care for women in unplanned pregnancies. Care for children in the foster care system. Care for the orphan. Pursue adoption in the way that you see the Lord calling you and your church to do that. And continue sharing your stories. Engage with us uh, on Stand for Life. Uh, You can find Stand for Life on Instagram and Facebook to hear more stories about how others are standing for life in their community. So we would encourage you to continue this conversation and uh, continue to ask that question that James Langford asked as you're having conversations about this bill uh, with your friends and your family. Okay, I, I understand that there's some disagreement here, but when do you see that life begins? I think that's a critical question moving forward uh, for this debate. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for all of your work on uh, this particular issue. I know you have been writing a lot. We've been recording a lot of podcasts about this, and uh, we're glad to have you here on on this team. And even though it was a disappointing vote in the Senate, uh, this work is worth it. We'll continue to push forward and glad to be on your team doing that. Thanks so much, Jeff, and and I echo uh, the gratitude as well. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delph, and Conrad Close for getting this episode published online. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your